0: Kids, Just a little disclaimer, uh, a couple things. One, apologies for the mic quality. Further episodes in this series will use a different microphone. Number two, and most important, uh, I'm not sure, and it doesn't matter how I did it, but any time I say 1910 during the uh, show that you're about to hear, Here, 1911, and everything else will follow and be fine, and I thank you. Okay, 1910 baseball. Let's see if we can do this. Um, What we have here is the uh, Evening World, Saturday, April 1st, 1911. Their sports page, with big headline, News of All Branches of the Sport. Uh... And just the overall format we're looking at here, there is a column on the left-hand side that is uh, the What You Don't Know About Big Men in Sports, um, and uh, we're going to hear about Jack Knight, the New York Hilltops great infielder. Of course, the Hilltops became the New York Yankees, and uh, just Quickly, an overview. There's a cartoon, pulled, uh, sports cartooning was very popular, and it doesn't go across. It's like a panel strip, but it goes vertically down. And then there's an article Giants Full of Fight, both off and on diamond. There's a big photo of them using a huge push ball in their spring training, and this thing is large. It looks like it's about five feet in diameter, and there is a kind of fuzzy photograph of the players all holding this huge sphere up, and there's an article, Hilltops and Reds Open Big Series at Cincinnati, and also some little things that, if they're baseball-related, we will get into, but let's uh, go left to right. So we are going to start with this Jack Knight, Hilltops great infielder. 30 years ago, Jack Knight's father was a great pitcher. Harry Davis, real discoverer of Hilltops, crack player in fall of 1904. 30 years ago, old Jim Knight was some pitcher. He was the star of a team uncle, Ben Sheba new owner of the world's champion athletics owned, and which played only on Saturdays in those old days when baseball was really in its infancy. One day Jim's arm went back on him, and to the regret of Scheib, the star pitcher had to quit the team. Some day, Ben, said Jim Knight on parting, I'll send you a downright smart ball player. The promise did not look very good because there were no little knights floating around the little suburb of Philadelphia, which is now known as North Philadelphia. Some years later, on October 6, 1886, there came into the family of Jim Knight a boy, and he was none other than John Wesley Knight, who in the later years was to become one of the star fielders of the baseball world. Jack Knight, he is known as today, and the fame on the hilltop, place him second to no man in the American leagues. In the fall of 1904, Connie Mack, who even has scouts at the North, all looking for possible baseball material, got a line on young Jack Knight. Harry Davis, whiling away sometime between the nursings of a sprained leg, out to Westchester, a suburb of the Quaker City, and his eye caught on to Jack Knight. When he saw Mac he recommended that the boy who was just reaching his 18th year should be given a trial. Mac sent for him, and Knight fixed his name to a contract that his father had promised would be signed 23 years before. Jack Knight, sure enough, was a working hand for Ben Shott. Anyway, In 1905, Jack went south, praying with the Athletics, who was, wait, when the season opened, Monty Cross, who was the regular shortstop of the team, was laid up with a bad hand. Jack Knight was sent in to work in his place, and so well did he do things around the middle of the diamond, that even when Cross got better... There was no room for him. For two and a half months and a half, Knight played. His batting average for half that period was about 460. Philadelphia players, and there are no more rabid ones in the world, began talking and singing the praises of the youth. Papers were crowded with stuff about the boy, and onto his name was tacked the schoolboy wonder. But Jack had been traveling too fast to keep it up and his batting average began to dwindle and back went Cross to his old job. And that year, young Knight played about 20 to rather 78 games, winding up with a hitting average of something near the 250 mark and doing his share to land the pennant for the Philadelphia club, which club went down to defeat at the hands of the Giants in that memorable World Series. More and more experience was the boy getting, and the next year found him still with the team. And at the opening of the season at third base, Lave Cross had been released, and the men who were slated for the job, Arthur Brothers and Rube Aldring, were too ill to play. But Jack held up his end all right, but nothing like Johnny Jimmy Collins had done for the Boston team. And so, when Connie Mack got the chance... To get Collins for his team in 1907, Knight and Chadburn, another player, went in exchange. In the fall of 1907, Boston was in search of a good pitcher and found that Baltimore had a fellow named Burchill, who looked as if he might fit the bill. Knight and Chadburn, a pitcher, were given Baltimore for Burchill, and what? that lanky Knight boy did play for the Eastern League aggregation. They seldom saw the like of it in the monumental city. Knight fairly tore up that league with his timely away swats, rather, finished the year as the leading run-getter and was the big noise in landing Baltimore the pennant that year. But much as Baltimore wanted to retain him, the powers of baseball could not see it that way, and Frank Farrell's scouts were on the trail. The hilltop leader drafted him, and in 1909, some do some very fine work. He played in about 100 games, and while his average at the bat was none too good, he proved a most sensational fielder, good enough to hang on to, and Farrell did that. During that winter, Knight found his weakness at the bat. He was standing with his feet close together, affording him the chance to pull away from the plate. That injured his batting because he could not get the proper swing. When the team under George Owings went south, Knight began the plan of batting with his legs spread far apart. He grew into the proper way to slam the pill. And the fans of New York know how many games he broke up with his timely hits and how he finished the season with a batting average of 312. Mark better than any other man on the team. This year, he has moved over to short, and the spring training has been bursting the hopes of college and minor league pitchers almost every day. A big season is ahead of him, and when he gets right there, there gets right. there is no doubt that he will work wonders not only at the bat, but in the field. He is a sure fielder, a fast base runner, and plays for the inside game as it's mapped out for him. Jack Knight, the man, is as fine a fellow as he is a ball player, and it may be said that he is one who is in the profession for which he is built. Never did he work at anything else except once. To please his mother, he did get a job in the city surveyor's office in Philadelphia. But while it pleased her, it was most tiresome to Jack. Every afternoon in the old summertime, he managed to get off and always get out with the boys, play baseball. like. All young Americans, Knight began playing ball when he was a bit of a shaver. Jack from the time he was sixteen was up and around the six foot mark, and a facetious scribe in relating the beginning of Knight as a ball player blamed the course of his career on the fact that he quit his books because he didn't they didn't build desks big enough for him. But that was not the fact. The truth is told in the foregoing. Knight is a homeboy for fair. He likes the company of his fellow players, but he would sooner be home with his folks or since he has been married with his wife and today he has a nice home in New York. He has forsaken Philadelphia for the big city because it gives him his living and New Yorkers he likes. Baseball is the boy's hobby and nothing else. He likes to read, and Rudyard Kipling's works are his favorite, and he knows everything the English poet ever wrote, he can recite any of the poems, and is no such a bad one in recitation either. There is one thing, though, that Knight will forgo the pleasure of playing a ball game for, and that is to see a surgical operation performed. He met many surgeons through one of his brothers who is a doctor, and time upon time he has been a witness of difficult surgical feats. And it's even betting, even betting rather, that the Highlanders star second baseman, if he had a chance over again, would turn out to be a doctor. And as a form of editing here, uh, that we're still in the process of putting this together, and what I am discovering is, I thought I could uh, down and dirty get away with this built-in microphone on this machine, and uh, it's it, it sounding a little tinny and lacking um, the testi- fortitude, testicular fortitude. So, uh, just as a note, uh, we are. Going to, from here, try to use a uh, different recording uh, setup, because this is, I don't know, it's tinny. It works, it's not the worst, but it's tinny. And as I said, the next column is a... uh comic strip, but it's vertical. It's got five panels. And I note, it is drawn by a man by the name of George McManus, who later created a comic strip called Bringing Up Father, which if you're a comic strip fan of the old stuff, I don't think they do that anymore. But Maggie and Jigs, created by George McManus, were a huge phenomenon for Years and years, uh, in the comics page. This uh, the first panel as a baseball player, cartoony baseball player, uh, dashing, looks like base running. And the caption for panel one says, "The find proves to be a great runner." Panel two has a man in a suit holding out a contract and a smiling baseball player. And is signed up with the team, reads the legend. And then he's walking amid a crowd of well-wishers. Caption reads, and comes to town amid cheers. And there's him standing with a baseball bat. But when he goes to bat, he always, and then a dejected-looking baseball player with his head down, strikes out. And we don't know whether he can run or not. Well, that was that. Uh, Moving along. Giants, full of fight, both on and off the diamond. Arthur Devlin knocks out third baseman Odell of Atlanta team with swing to join fight, which is outcome of the trouble with a rabid fan. Oh, this sounds good. By Bozeman Bulger. Staff correspondent at of the Evening world with the team out of Atlanta, Georgia, April 1st now remember. unlike modern newspapers, this is an evening newspaper. so this is reporting what happened the same day. So uh, let's read here. If a warlike, And cocky spirit counts for aught. The Giants have the best chance right now to win the pennant that they have enjoyed since Philadelphia was beaten for the world's championship. As a matter of fact, the belligerent brood is boiling so hot that talk of inside plays has given way to the development of punching muscles and a study in the art of footwork. In two days now, we have had two fights, and the main bout will probably go on today at two o'clock when Josh DeVore tackles the Atlanta shortstop, who is just his size. Quote, I don't want to see the fellows looked upon as a lot of bruisers, said McGraw this morning, but you can't help admire them for their gameness when the whole town is hostile and even the local players are walking around with a chip on their shoulders. That shows that they have in them a winning spirit and that they will not back down on any proposition that confronts them. Devlin won his fight. The first fight between Arthur Devlin and third baseman O'Dell of Atlanta yesterday was one of the square affairs of that kind that was ever framed up to settle a dispute. A ring was formed around them by players and nobody was allowed to interfere. Devlin won cleanly with a swing to the jaw, but hereafter the minor league's gameness cannot be questioned. The whole affair has resulted from King Brewster, an offensive rooter, being permitted to use such language from the grandstand on the opening day that if a player used it, he would be suspended for life. All the camp followers went to the second a scene of hostilities, early realizing that another scrap was imminent. When Odell made a remark to the effect that the Giants were a lot of cowards for tackling one man on the day previous, fireworks started. Devlin agreed to fight for the New York team, and he did a good job of it. This fighting business has given us a lot of unpleasant notoriety, says McGraw, but any fair-minded man knows that my players were right in every instance. Were it not for the coolness of McGraw, the trouble could have been much worse. He stepped in between all the belligerents yesterday and quieted things when at heart he was burning up. Twice he protected the umpire and the decisions that he got were so raw that the Atlanta crowd expressed themselves as feeling pleased that he turned the game into a farce the Atlanta public, for some reason, is against the local team, and the rooters do not hesitate to express their opinions from the stand. They are sore because the club allowed manager Billy Smith to go to Chattanooga, Smith having won the pennant for them two years ago. In all this turmoil, however... McGraw is bringing out the fighting machine that he has been building since he opened the season at Marlin, Texas. It is crackling and sparkling with life. He has polished it off here and there until he now has a run-making engine that looks certain to win the pennant. The present streak of hitting continues. The Giants ought to get a flying start on April 12th and be far ahead before they are pulled up. A side note. Okay, so the Season begins as late as that. Okay, so we are going to get some preseason in here Resume resume reading. At present, there is not a weak hitter on the club. And to show that he has other material just as good, McGraw put Beals Becker into bat for Murray yesterday when the bases were full. And the utility star swept the bags clean with a terrific drive to deep right field for three bases. Giants couldn't use grounds. The only difficulty that the giant manager is encountering in Atlanta is his inability to get the field for as much practice as he wants. The Atlanta club was so peeved yesterday because McGraw pitched the last three innings and shut them out. That manager Jordan put his own club on the diamond after the game and would not allow New York to use it. The Washington club has the diamond in the morning and the Giants are without a place to work except in a regular game. It reminded one of old times when Robinson went in to catch and McGraw walked to the pitcher's box. Without signals, preliminary warm-up or any of the usual matters of form, the little manager began popping the ball in Robles' mitt and the crackers couldn't touch it. McGraw used a dinky little ball which he calls the peeve ball. And on one occasion, he struck a batter out by tossing the ball under his legs, as lads used to do at school. He says he never used that dinky curve unless he is peeved. This morning, he gave out a statement to the local papers in which he declares himself to be the greatest pitcher in the world. The Giants are somewhat disturbed today over the illness of Arthur Raymond Nee bugs. The eccentric twiller has been down with a severe cold, and he appears to be all broken up over it. McGraw's main hope for the pennant is to get some good work out of Raymond and Marquand during the coming season. Raymond was going nicely when the cold struck him, and he expects to be all right again within a few days. Marquand is getting better every day, and McGraw intended to let him work the full nine innings yesterday, Hadn't the umpire interfered and put the rube out of the game for protesting on a decision? Markand, almost invincible. During the five innings he worked, Markand was practically invincible. He had excellent control of his curveball, and he slammed it over the middle of the plate every time he got in the hole. If Markand could fall to develop fail, rather, to develop as McGraw and Robinson expect, there is still hope in Teru, Shantz, and Rudolph. Shantz hasn't had much opportunity to show his real class, but in the practice games, he is going strong. McGraw's drilled him st- so steadily that he has almost dropped the shoulder-bound movement that was so noticeable. Schatz has a beautiful curve and an immense amount of speed, and best of all, he has control. He was an honor man at college, and naturally, he is bright. He is rapidly absorbing McGraw's way of thinking, and it begins to look as if he would be kept on the club for some time to come. Rudolph is getting better every day, and no fault could be found with his work in any of the games that he has pitched since the regulars began playing together. The only thing that keeps Tess together from being, rather, a big leaguer right now, is the flatness of his curve. He has been unable to show a good curve up to this time. The Giants players here again today, the Giants play, rather, here again today, and leave for Greensboro, North Carolina tomorrow. If the two clubs can declare an armistice, Matthewson will probably pitch today. He declares he will not work, except under the white flag. Oh, boy, it's some real uh, rowdy baseball. And uh, Bugs Raymond has narrow escape. Um, Atlanta, April 1st. This is just a little paragraph in a with border around it. Pitcher Bugs Raymond of the Giants had a harrow escape from injury last night when he received some medicine by mistake that was intended for one of the scribes who was suffering from malaria. Raymond was just on the point of swallowing the dose when the drug clerk ran in hatless and excited and made him desist. It's all right, mumbled Raymond. I can stand anything a newspaper man can. The only thing that will kill me now is whiskey. Uh, these anecdotes are just so delicious. Uh, and here we have uh, Hilltops and Reds open big series at Cincinnati contests will be battle of wits between boy manager and grizzled veteran from a staff correspondent of the evening world with the team Cincinnati April 1st Al chase and the team he hopes to bring the American League pennant to New York with this year get the first real tryout this afternoon they tackle Clark Griffiths hustling red men in the first game of a series of three, that is, if the old weather is good enough. It's a big series in as much as both the Hilltops in the American League and the Reds in the National are regarded as pennant possibilities in their respective organizations. And there is a lot more to the game, too. On one side will be pitted a manager who has been at the helm to many a hard-fought campaign against the newest comer in the managerial business, and one who today is enjoying the distinction of being the youngest guide to the destinies of a big league ball club since classes were formed in the promotion of the national pastime. Clark Griffith, it seems Scarcely necessary to say is the veteran and Hal Chase, hero of the Hilltop and premier first baseman of the world. The other, seven years ago, this same old grizzled veteran of baseball unearthed the boy who was in later days to match his wits with him on a ball field. Hal Chase was found in a in far off California by Dan Long, a friend of Griffith's, and it was Long who urged Griffith to get. The lad. Chase was only reaching his majority then. Griffith did as bid and secured the player from the Los Angeles club after a bitter fight, which the National Commission had to decide. But Hal came to New York, not unheralded though, but with only the reputation of being a pretty fair first baseman. That first year with the Hilltops caused the greatest writers on baseball to say that Chase going to develop into the best first sacker the game ever saw. That the prediction came true is on the records. Chase only played first base then and listened to the way a game is won in the big league circles. He listened to the wise words of the old Fox. He digested those words, and when he was with the team the second year, he showed many plays that were possible to be made in a game and which never before had been tried. Griffith was ever ready to accept Chase's suggestions, and many of them today are used by Griffith, and some of the other things that Griffith evolved himself stuck fast in Chase's brain. The trade was virtually even, and today comes the test of gray matter between the old and new Chiefs and the muscle and ability of the players under each. It's just possible that Griffith's men are in a little better shape than the New Yorkers, The former have had a lot of hard training and good games to fit them for any kind of a fray. They had the St. Louis Browns in the series and got away with the verdict if the writer's memory serves him right. The Hilltaps have had to battle in only two games against a team of any account, the Boston Nationals, the Southern Scrolling league clubs afforded the Broadway boys nothing to try out their full strength, but all hands are in fairly good condition, and they look to win the series. Walter will not play. Harry Walter will be out of the game, though, because of the injury received to his arm, in Chattanooga is not well enough to let him get in any of the games. But Chase's team is well fortified, and when it got into Cincinnati this morning, Bertie Cree, who had been with the, what is that? Some of this has some really faded texts. The Yanigans, since the club divided at Athens, was to get into a regular harness and fill the gap in left field. Yannigans, wow, that's a wonderful term. And Bertie is a mighty fine filler in. He can wallop and what is wanted. Another little uh, bit here, again, wrapped in a little square, rectangular line. Hal Chase showed good judgment in Chattanooga game. Cincinnati, April 1st. Hal Chase was subjected to something of a roast for not putting some of his regular pitchers in that game at Chattanooga when the mercury was dead dallying around the zero point. But to the writer's mind, it showed that Chase had a long head on him. Of all players, none is harder to get into condition than the pitchers. For three weeks, they have been working to get their arms into shape, and he figured and figured rightly that one cold day would have been enough to put any man he used out of commission for at least three or four weeks. When the Chattanooga manager insisted on playing the game, Chase used his fielders in the box and nearly got away with the contest. And... Hal Chase gained much of his knowledge of game from Clark and Griffith. Wait a minute, there's something here that's... Oh, 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 and Bertie. It's from the end of the last uh, article, he can wallop, and what is wanted today are the wallops. Boy. Uh, this is unintuitive to my eye, and because I have to blow it up and only see part of the page on the screen, it led to that. And I do apologize. Um, Charlie Hemphill will go to work in the Wright Garden, and Bert Daniels will take care of everything that comes his way in center Chase, of course, will be at first, Jack Knight at second, probably Roy Hartzell at short, and Otis Johnson at third. Jim Vaughn bon will be the one who will likely pitch the opener, and Ed Sweeney will be behind the bat. And what else do we have? Do we have one more? Yes! you uh, I almost forgot about Brooklyn. Sheldon Lejeune of Brooklyn. Brooklyn team hurt in smash-up. Oh, boy, there was an auto accident. Two other players who were in auto accident with him, shaken up. Knoxville, Tennessee, April 1st. As a result of an automobile accident, Sheldon Lejeune, the big outfielder of the Brooklyn National League Club, is confined in the general hospital here, suffering from several cuts on his forehead and a badly injured knee. Al Birch and Dolly Stark, two other members of the team who were in the car with Lejeune, are badly shaken up. The three players accepted an invitation from Mr. Sledge, a businessman of this city, and a friend to take a ride. Shortly after the auto left the hotel where the players are stopping, it ran into a streetcar with terrific force, Lejeune being thrown heavily to the ground with Mr. Sedge, Burke, and Stark landing on top of him. Lejeune was carried into a residence nearby and an ambulance summoned, which conveyed the player to the general hospital. Mr. Sledge is deeply grieved over the accident and has offered to pay the doctor's bill. The Dodgers were prevented from taking any practice yesterday on account of a heavy fall of snow during the morning. In the afternoon, Fisher, the young catcher of this city now with the Dodgers, was so anxious to do some work that he got pitchers Reagan and Burke to go with him, and they spent a solid hour tossing the ball to each other. Fisher is making good with the Dodgers and is in excellent condition. If the weather is favorable today, the Dodgers will play the University of Tennessee team. And there you have it. I mean, aside from the picture, let's read the caption. Oh, there is no caption, is there? After all that, no, just Giants using a huge push ball in their spring training. And there are several, like I said earlier, fuzzy baseball players holding up this ball. And uh, that's it. That's the prototype. That's number one. With any luck, number two is coming. Uh, We're not going to commit to a daily regimen, but uh, that would be nice if I could maintain that. But uh, 1910, baseball, inaugurated here. And uh, if you have any comments or what have you, uh, contributions, ideas, they can all be sent to. This here email address I'm about to tell you, get a pen and paper or whatever you use to jot such things down and the address being kpqr.torc at gmail.com. I will repeat, kpqr.torc at gmail.com. And uh, until the next time we meet, uh, I like to say, set the controls for the heart of the fun.